I am uh, Sue Justice, and um, let me tell you, writing a sermon was about the hardest thing I ever had to do. Who knew? How, how's the sound? Is it good? Can you hear me all right? Am I too loud? No? Good? All right. All right. How many of you know the difference between a sermon and a homily? Mm-hmm. Those terms are usually used interchangeably. But according to Wikipedia, there is a difference. Now, isn't it interesting, just a little aside, isn't it interesting that we now say according to Wikipedia instead of according to Webster, like I grew up doing? Primary difference is that a sermon aims to provide religious instruction, moral or scriptural, and a homily seeks to put scripture into practical context. A homily is usually more conversational than a sermon. Uh, it's more of a reflection on the scripture, uh, on the one that is read, and can be delivered by anybody, even me. Where a sermon usually takes the form of a lecture, more formal, more scholarly, and almost always delivered by someone ordained or well-trained, like Pastor Lars or Pastor Dew or Cindy. Well, now that is probably more than you ever wanted to know. Let me, uh, before I attempt my homily, please pray with me. Lord, take my words and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Well, my children's sermon was going to be on Romans, but my homily, my reflection is on the gospel reading, which is Matthew 16, verse 21 to 28. Now, going back to last Sunday's gospel, which was Matthew 16, 13 to 20, Peter had just proclaimed who Jesus was. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus heaps praise on Peter. He was so proud of Peter. But just a few verses later in today's gospel, as you heard, when Jesus is explaining to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and die, even though they knew the risks involved with him going on to Jerusalem. Uh, it, 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 Peter was just so shocked by that that he took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. What guts that took. Jesus responds angrily and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. Wow, harsh words. Calling him Satan and saying he is a stumbling block. The word Satan means adversary, one who stands in opposition. Basically, a stumbling block. Um, are you carrying any? I know I'm carrying a whole lot. Have you ever experienced 
something I experience often, a little voice sitting on your shoulder. And he tells you things, particularly when you're contemplating taking on a task that you might be, might be a call from the Lord, and you're trying to decide, what do I do with this? And that little voice talks to me, and the first thing he usually says is, you're too old. You're not good enough. You haven't enough faith. You don't have time. The voice keeps trying to dissuade me by providing me with excuses. My, will, my spirit is willing, but my body is not. I'm much too busy. I can't pray out loud. I can't quote Bible verses. I'm not prepared. I can't talk about my faith. No one taught me how. I'm not comfortable doing that, etc., etc. Who is telling us these lies? Remember, one of Satan's character flaws is it is a habitual liar. Jesus does not tear you down. He builds you up. The Lord tells us things like, you are made in my image. That's Genesis 1, verse 26. You are precious in the sight of the Lord. Psalm 116, verse 15. You are worth the body and blood of Jesus. That's Luke 22, 18 to 19. You are forgiven. Colossians 1, verse 14. I was given a printed list of what is called an I am statement at a conference that I went to a number of years ago. And uh, what I do with this list is, uh, and, it's, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, I stand in front of my bathroom mirror when I'm feeling really, really down, or I can't, I'm too old, I hurt, and, and I'm not good enough, and I just wanna throw in the towel. Stand in front of the bathroom mirror and I take that sheet of paper that has I am statements on it. And it's wonderful. You are in my image. You are precious in the sight of the Lord. Uh, these are the things that the Lord tells you. Those are not the things that Satan tells you. Uh, Sometimes Satan, I feel, is just sitting on my shoulder and, uh, or his little minion, and he's telling me all these things that, that, that really are just absolutely not true. And so I read those statements, and it always lifts me up. And if anybody's interested in some I am statements that you can read when you're feeling really awful, I've got some copies made, and it's over on the credenza as you go out. I do believe that Satan is alive and well, working to deceive me and to distract me from daily picking up my cross and following Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote a satirical book, yet filled with truths about how Satan works. It's called The Screwtape Letters. It was written in the 70s, so it's been around a very long time. When I got it out to reread while I was planning this sermon. My copy from about 1976, maybe, maybe at the latest, maybe 78, was all yellow, 
And when I opened it up, all the pages began to, to fall out. And I went, oh, I wonder if it's still in print. So guess what? I went on Amazon and I found copies and they're only, they're under $10. And so uh, if you haven't read this, um, you know, it, it's, let me just explain what it's a little bit about. Uh, there's screw tape and he is kind of the senior advisor and mentor and demon and he is instructing his, in letters that he writes, he's instructing uh, his little minion who happens to be his nephew Wormwood. And uh, he's instructing him on how to work on his assigned human who is flirting with Christianity. It is a very engaging, easy read, been around a long time, and if you've never read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, and if you've read it before, as I did over 50 years ago, read it again. I recommend it. Okay, moving on. After calling Peter Satan and a stumbling block, and to get behind him, he then said to the disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Another way he may have said it, any of you who want to be followers, you must be willing to stop thinking about yourself and what you want. You must be willing to carry the cross that is given to you every day to follow me. Let's take a little deeper look at what that taking up of the cross might mean for us. Now, I'm not one to reinvent the wheel, so rather than trying to paraphrase a commentary that I read on this passage from a site, I, I whoops, I lost my place, hang on. I'm not one to reinvent the wheel, okay. So I read on this passage from a site from Luther Seminary called A Working Preacher. Let me share some of it. It really gets to the meat of these verses. Clayton Schmidt writes, we have heard that we should take up our cross. To some degree, we followers do this gladly. We especially do those things that are not too dear. We serve on boring church committees, not at Lord of Grace, ours are not boring. <laughs> Bearing our cross without complaining, we give more than we think is financially prudent and hope it doesn't put a dent in our lifestyle. We help out with those people who annoy us, thinking we are bearing a burden. The list of these little crosses is endless. But the passage pushes deeper. To take up the cross is to, not, to deny oneself, not to safeguard one's way of life by disciplining it with little taxations. Jesus demands more. The Messiah requires more. The problem is we are pretty poor at cross-bearing. The disciples wouldn't have thought themselves any better. They had seen crosses and knew how life-crushing they were. For them, the thought of carrying a cross was a life-and-death matter. In the end, many of them did die because they followed the Messiah. For us to bear a cross is a metaphorical idea. No one really expects to die in the process. 
But even to deny ourselves seems too much to ask. We aren't much good at that either. Here is both the challenge and the good news in this text. If we follow Jesus, we will be seriously called to bear certain crosses and lose hold of our lifestyle. Yet in all our weakness and human-mindedness, it is Jesus' own death on the cross that enables us to do what we cannot do in our own power. I'm going to say that again. It is Jesus' own death on the cross that enables us to do what we cannot do in our own power. God's power is revealed not in walks through porticles of power, but through the alleys of weakness and misery. That is where Jesus walked. That is where he leads us to walk. That is where he's he strengthens us to bear the burdens of discipleship. It is his burden we take upon our shoulders. It is his strength that bears the weight. We do nothing on our own, but he can do much through us. Without him, Peter was no rock, but a stumbling block. With him, Peter was the church. With him, we are not powerless to deny ourselves but able to bear all he may give us. Someone said, once put in this way, we say, but Lord, I cannot. And God says, I'm glad to hear you say that. Through you, I can. I read an interesting allegory the other day. Say you have a car that you want to sell. You sell it. You get the payment, you sign the papers, and you hand over the keys. Following Jesus means handing the keys of our lives over to him who bought us. He bought us with his life, paying the price or ransom for our sins by dying on the cross for our salvation. Jesus wanted Peter to be his disciple as he wants us to be, following him with trust and obedience. Many people are familiar with, in both the Old and New Testament, um, served the Lord in powerful ways while bearing their cross. In the purpose-driven life, which some of you probably have heard of or read by author Rick Warren, I think he was also a pastor, responds to those who make excuses concerning why they cannot serve the Lord. I love this. Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure, Leah was unattractive, Joseph was abused, Moses stuttered, Gideon was poor, Samson was codependent, <clears throat> Rehab was immoral, David had an affair and all kinds of family problems, Elijah was suicidal, Jeremiah was depressed, Jonah was reluctant, Naomi was a widow, John the Baptist was eccentric, to say the least. <laughs> Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. And Timothy was timid. <laughs> Yet, they all served God in their own way. When Jesus calls us to follow him, 
He's not looking for the smartest or the strongest or the bravest. He doesn't check our resume, our list of references, and that leads me to my final point. How were those disciples able to succeed? What happened? You just heard how doubtful they were and Peter rebuking Jesus and you know that, what did Pastor Duke call them the other day? Uh, knucklehead. They call, she call, yeah, he called Peter a knucklehead. Okay, so think about that. All of a sudden, now they're succeeding. What did Jesus promise his disciples? In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 16 to 18, Jesus tells them, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Then in verse 18, he makes this promise. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And in verse 26, when the advocate, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And John 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth. He will not speak on his own, and he will tell you what is to come. Jesus is telling them that the Holy Spirit will be the messenger. And after Jesus' resurrection, when he was with the apostles, he told them, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And that is the event we celebrate as Pentecost. And that's described in, in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. So what did the apostles do after that long wait in the upper room where that spectacular baptism of the Holy Spirit took place? They rushed out and eagerly began to share the good news of Jesus. They healed the sick and converted sinners. They drove out demons and taught the people a new way to live. They were enlightened. They were enthusiastic. They were convincing. They were bold. These are the same group of men that had been lowly fishermen, a tax collector, and even revolutionaries wanting a mighty warrior king to free them from the oppression of the Romans. Some had even denied knowing Jesus after his crucifixion. So how did this happen? How were they suddenly able to do what they now were doing? Just wham. Only one answer, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave them gifts. He equipped them. He gave them tools to succeed. What about you and me? We've all been given gifts from the Holy Spirit. Is God asking you to accept an assignment that seems beyond your comfort zone? Are you afraid you might fail? Are you afraid you might succeed? If you remember only one thing that I've said this morning, hopefully it's this. God does not call the equipped he equips the called. I'm going to say that again. 
God does not call the equipped. He equips the call. To quote another devotional I've read, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he is looking for people who are willing to let go of the ordinary and look for the extraordinary. Sometimes that means we're called to leave everything, figuratively, our nets, our family. More often, following him means we keep doing what we've been doing, only with a shift in perspective. We still change the diapers, not anymore. But we focus on raising godly children. We still do laundry, but as we do, we remember that we serve the God of holiness. We still do business, but we remember that it is kingdom business. We still go fishing, but now we fish for people as well as fish. We continue to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal himself to us. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. We continue to listen for a call to serve. Open our ears, Lord, so we can hear your call. We ask and look for opportunities to serve others. Open our hearts, Lord, so we can more fully love our neighbors. As Christians, we are all called to spread the good news. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, his last words were, go and make disciples of all nations. Sharing our faith isn't a suggestion, it's a command. We've been called and we will be equipped. And by the state of the world we live in today, I think we Christians need to do better and more. I know I do. Amen.